Work began on the Eiffel Tower in July 1887, and it only took about two years before it was ready to serve as the gate for the World's Fair in Paris. It's made up of about 18,000 specially designed and manufactured pieces of lattice wrought iron. It was a bargain at only one and a half million dollars to build. Now in today's money, that's about 48 million dollars to build. But you can imagine that if we were to set out to build the Eiffel Tower today, it would cost a lot more than that. If you've ever been to Paris and you've climbed the stairs of the Eiffel Tower, you have been treated to an iconic view of the city. And it's still an amazing landmark. Still today, more than 7 million people visit it every year. And what's remarkable is that it was built to be torn down. It was a temporary structure. It was only supposed to last for about 20 years, and then they were going to tear it down and put something else in its place. Can you imagine? Can you imagine spending so much time, so much effort, so many resources on something that's only going to be temporary? I can imagine that that's the kind of question that this church asked their pastor as he has spent so much time showing how the Mosaic Covenant, with all of its elaborate rituals, with all of its detailed laws, that even that covenant was only intended to be temporary. This morning, I want to show you how that temporary covenant points forward to Jesus in three particular ways. And as I do it, I want, to, I want you to see that the Mosaic Covenant is filled with things that you can put your hands on, things that you can see, things that you can experience in some way with your senses. But what it points forward to is Jesus. And Jesus right now is not someone we can see. His work is not something that we can observe. And for a lot of us, that creates a crisis of faith. But I want you to see by the end of this sermon that what is unseen is better than what can be seen. So let's jump in. And the first thing that I want you to see from this Mosaic Covenant is the place of the sacrifice. Go back to verse 1, the early part of this chapter. The pastor is referring in these first verses to what was happening in Israel's tabernacle while Israel was wandering through the wilderness and Israel's temple after they settled in the land and David's son Solomon built the initial temple. And you remember that after that initial temple, they were carted off to exile in Babylon. And when they came back, Nehemiah and Ezra built a second temple. And then King Herod, about the same time that Jesus was alive, on earth undertook to expand that temple. And as we've talked in previous weeks about, we think that at the time this letter is being written, that temple is still standing. So it's before 70 AD. It's before the Roman army marches through Jerusalem. And if you were to have seen the temple at that time, it was really a remarkable sight to behold. 
Parts of it were covered in gold so that as you approached the city, it would sparkle in the distance. It dominated the top of Mount Moriah right there in the center of the city of Jerusalem. Because of the sacrificial system, smoke ascended from the Temple Mount nearly every moment of every day. If you got close enough to the temple, you could see the priests dressed in their robes, and perhaps you would be lucky enough to even see the high priest. The high priest in his blue and white robes with the breastplate that had 12 great uh, 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 stones, precious gems, on each, of one, on each of the stones was inscribed one of the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he wore a great white turban. And on that white turban, it was encircled by a gold crown. And on the crown was imprinted the words, Holy to the Lord. If you were a priest, you could go into the temple. You and I, we would have to stay far outside, far outside into the court of the Gentiles. But if you were a priest, you could make your way into the temple. And as you walked into the temple, you would see a giant menorah. And that was the golden lampstand. And you would see a table for the showbread. And that bread was part of the offering that the priests would give, symbolizing God's provision for them through those many years that they wandered in the desert. One of the ways that we know those things were there is not just because Scripture tells us, but if you go to the city of Rome today, you can see the image of that menorah. You can see the image of that table inscribed in the victory arch that was built after Titus leveled the the temple and brought all of those elements back into Rome. In the center of the temple, the Holy of Holies, only the high priest could go in there once a year. That was where God promised to meet Israel. And there the high priest would take the blood from the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, and he would sprinkle it on top of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant disappeared from the historical record in 587 B.C. when the temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And of course, we're grateful that Indiana Jones found it, and now it's in a government warehouse someplace. All that beauty, all that glory, and our preacher says it pales in comparison. It pales in comparison to the greater and more perfect tent. Look at verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. You might remember last week that I told you we were going to skip over the first few verses of chapter 8, partly because a lot of that information is repeated here in the first verses of chapter 9. Back in chapter 8, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn back to chapter 8 or scroll back to chapter 8 and look at verse 5 with me. 
The author is talking about the priests who are serving in the temple. And he says, they, the priests, serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, the tabernacle he's talking about, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. He's referring back to the time that the Mosaic Covenant was first established when Moses was up on the Mount of Sinai receiving from God not just the tablets of law, but also this pattern for what he was supposed to build on earth. First the tabernacle and then the temple. It was a copy and a shadow of the real temple. Well, where's the real temple? Where's the temple that Jesus is a minister in as a high priest? Skip forward to chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. The ancient tabernacle and then the temple was a scale model, not even a scale model, it was a model of heaven itself. The question is, why is it better for Jesus to be in heaven that we cannot see when these Christians at least had this temple in Jerusalem that they could see? And this is a pressing issue for many Christians today. In fact, there's a a whole theology that says that someday Jesus is going to return and rule and reign on earth for 1,000 years and there will be a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem where sacrifices are being made in front of Jesus as he reigns on David's throne. Is that better? Is that what we're aiming for? Or is it better for Jesus to be ministering in heaven? Friends, it is far better for Jesus to be in heaven at the right hand of God for multiple reasons that are explicated here in this text. But let me give you just one before we move on. He has taken our human nature into heaven. He has paved the way for you and me to follow him. So our eyes aren't fixated on the things of earth, on this creation. Instead, we are being inexorably drawn to the new creation. Because remember what Jesus told his disciples, wherever I go, I am preparing a place for you. Because Jesus is ministering in heaven itself, we have confidence that we will be with him one day. The second part of the Mosaic Covenant that I want you to see is all the blood. Man, this chapter is filled with blood. The the entire Mosaic Covenant is filled with blood. Look at verse 19 and following. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop 
and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Once the tabernacle was established, they had to take those natural things that they had built, all the different elements that would be used for service in the temple. How would they set them apart for a holy use? God says they need to be purified with blood. And then the people themselves, as they come and make this covenant with God, calling down on themselves covenant curses, if they are not faithful to God, Moses sprinkles them with blood too. Have you ever cut yourself or scraped yourself and you haven't been able to clean it up right away and suddenly you just got kind of that mass of of blood that's congealed on your hands or on your knees or maybe you're trying to help somebody else who's bleeding and and pretty soon you just just feel the stickiness and the, the tackiness of that blood. Can you imagine the horror of that day? And it was all designed to show Israel how serious sin was. The fundamental truth of verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is why, as you've heard me say several times in this series, the sacrifices of the Mosaic Covenant were extensive. Daily sacrifices, weekly sacrifices, yearly sacrifices, special seasonal sacrifices. The blood never stopped flowing. Can can you imagine the fly infestation in Jerusalem? The carcasses of animals on the Temple Mount that are being prepared for the offering on the altar? The hundreds, if not thousands, of animals that are packed around the temple in stalls and in holding pens, just waiting to be led up so that they can be sacrificed. All of that blood purified the elements of worship. And when an an individual brought a sacrifice to the priest, It temporarily granted that person forgiveness. It temporarily separated that person from the judgment that was due against their sin. Instead, they would look at that goat. They would look at that little lamb. They would look at that bull. And they would say, there's my sin. There's the reason or the the, the cost of my sin. But it couldn't. It couldn't once and for all couldn't once and for all turn away the wrath of God. The blood sacrifices of the first covenant had to be eclipsed by something else. As visceral as it was to see it, to hear the bleating of the animals, to watch the knife flash in the sun, to smell the blood, as visceral as that was, it had to be eclipsed by something better. The power 
of Christ's death. Look at verse 14. Starting at verse 13, actually. If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? power of Christ's blood is to purify us, not to just temporarily put some distance between God's judgment and you and me, but to finally and forever forgive you of your sins. What a strange detergent blood is. And yet that's the forensic chemistry of Christ's blood, that it can forgive that it washes the foulest clean. The work of Jesus on the cross, suffering and dying for our sins, actually does what the blood of these animals could only signify, could only point to, could only hope for. Real purification. Are you dirty today? Are there things that you hope no one ever finds out about you? What are you trusting in? Only the blood of Christ can purify you. After being, after dying on the cross, and being raised from the dead, Jesus ascended on high. And it's in heaven that his real priestly work occurs. It's in heaven that he once for all enters into God's presence on behalf of his people, offering up himself as the sacrifice that we need to save us from the guilt and the power of our sin. It's better. We can't see it. We can't be there to observe it. And yet the power of that sacrifice does what all of those animal sacrifices so for so many hundreds of years could never accomplish. The third thing that I want you to see in the Mosaic Covenant is the continuous work of the priests. Look at verse 25. Talking about the work of Jesus, it was, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. Do you remember at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke about the story of the birth of John the Baptist where we read about his father, Zechariah, who is, it's his turn to go and serve in the temple in Jerusalem? You see, that whole Levitical priesthood, it required a certain churn of people. It needed enough human capital to keep the system going. It was too much for one small team of people to accomplish. And so classes and teams of priests would be sent into Jerusalem on a regular basis to provide all of these sacrifices, to oversee the daily sacrifices, the weekly sacrifices, the monthly sacrifices, to haul all of the animals back and forth. And the high priest himself every year would go up 
again and again to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And then the next year, he would do it again. Year in and year out, the same sacrifices for the same sins with no expectation that anything would ever be different. No expectation that anything could be different. But what the high priest didn't realize is as he is sprinkling the blood of the sacrifice on top of the mercy seat, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, that that action pointed forward to a sacrifice that one day would bring an end to any need for sacrifice. When Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled the entire sacrificial system of the Mosaic Covenant. His death stretched back into the past, redeeming those who didn't know what they were looking for, but trusted in the seed of the woman, trusted in the seed of Abraham, trusted that God, by his own strong right arm, would one day come to their rescue. And his death stretches forward into the future to touch even you and me, who weren't there the day that he was crucified who weren't born into that Mosaic covenant, and yet who, as sinners, still need a Savior. The redemption of all people, in all time, in all places, depends on that one sacrifice. Having accomplished his work, there is just one more thing left for Jesus to do, and it's to come back. Look at verses 27 and following. Just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let me ask you the question that's implicit in verse 28. Are you eagerly waiting for Jesus? Sometimes, sometimes when I'm suffering, then I want Jesus to come back. Sometimes when I see the pain of the world around me, the injustices, then I long for Jesus' return. Sometimes when I feel the pain that other people's sin has inflicted on me, I, I cry out for rescue. But too often, friends, we are comfortable. Too often, we look around at this world and we say, well, it kind of works for me. It's easy tomorrow that, or easy to imagine that tomorrow will be probably just as good, if not maybe slightly better than today. And in those cases, we change the prayer at the end of the book of Revelation. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, just not yet. 
Friends, part of our problem is that we are captivated more by what we can see than by what is unseen. We are moved more by our senses than our beliefs. We walk by sight rather than by faith. So here's the million dollar question. What's better? Is it better the things that could be seen? Or are the things that are unseen better? You've heard me say it many times. This ancient congregation was in danger. They were in danger of going back to Judaism. Because there, the things that they could see, well, those seem more real. And those were things that God ordained himself. So why couldn't they have something that would support their faith? Why couldn't they have something that they could look to and know that's where God is? Why is my high priest somewhere I can't even see? I can't even imagine what heaven is. I can see that priest. I can smell the blood of that sacrifice. I can see the smoke ascend. Isn't that better? Friends, you and I are also tempted to find visible things to which we can look for assurance, to which we can look for hope. But our preacher wants us to remember two things, and we'll finish with this. The first thing is that the invisible nature of our faith is only temporary. One day, our faith will be sight. The clouds will be rolled back like a scroll. And Christ will return to save those who eagerly wait for him. So be careful. Be careful that you're not looking to the circumstances of your life for hope. Be careful that you're not looking into the eyes of someone you love for hope. Be careful that you're not looking at the size of your bank account, the passage of a law, the election of a candidate. Friends, if those are your hope, then your actual hope in Christ will shrink. One day things will be different. And this life will be everlasting life. But that day is not yet today. So instead of moaning that fact, use these days of expectation to re-examine your grasp on earthly things, the things that you can see, and instead ask God to fix your hope on the things that you cannot see. That's the first thing. Your faith will one day be sight. The second thing is this, God does not leave you as an orphan during these days that you wait. He doesn't tell you that you just need to suck it up. He doesn't tell you that you need to find the strength to wait. He doesn't tell you just to be patient until it's time for him to come back. He doesn't leave us as orphans in this in-between time. You don't have to go out and scour the world looking for things to bolster your faith, to assure you of God's love and favor, to strengthen you for these days of waiting. He gives you signs and seals. 
He gives you things that you can smell and taste and touch and see as confirmation of his promises. These earthly elements of bread and wine, they secure our heavenly hope. But they're humble, aren't they? They're not nearly as brilliant as the headdress of the high priest. But they come with the promise of God that when we eat and drink in faith, we are actually brought into fellowship with the God, the high priest, could barely stand in the presence of for less than a day. And yet you are brought into communion with that God. This is why I encourage you every Sunday, in those words that I hope you're not getting tired of, to eat, drink, and be satisfied. It's not because the amount of wine and bread is so great that it will satiate the growling tummies we have about now on Sunday. Instead, it's because it's enough for now. It's enough to sustain us for another day of pilgrimage. It's enough because it unites us to our risen head who has gone before us into heaven and is coming again to take us home. Let's pray. Father, help us to grasp hold of the enoughness of the signs and seals that you have given us. Protect us from ourselves and our desperate inclination to find other things seen in which we can rest our hopes. Instead, Father, fix our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, on the work of Jesus ruling and reigning at your right hand. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.